This is a special presentation from UFC Fight Pass. Step into our world at UFCFightPass.com. Please welcome from the Fitz Nation podcast, Brendan Fitzgerald. Oh, if you want somebody with access to the fight game, look no further. I am standing here in my office, but already this morning I have been inside the locker room at the UFC Performance Institute with one Sean Strickland, the UFC middleweight champion. I'll tell you what he told me earlier today. And I also caught up with uh, my good friend, Jeff Nowitzki. And as you can imagine, it's been quite a week for the uh, head of our drug testing program, currently with USADA, soon to be a bit different down the stretch. And we often uh, have heard the phrase in various different arenas of the world, follow the money, right? Follow the money, you will figure out what's going on. And uh, that is certainly true in this case in regards to the UFC and USADA, but... It's not just following the money that a lot of people think you should follow, and that would be in terms of Conor McGregor and his money-making ability for the UFC. How about you follow the money for USADA and what actually runs their business? So we'll get into the fallout. If you'd like to join us, um, call or text 917-UFC-TALK. You can call in. You can give your thoughts. And also, there was some major news with UFC 294. You may have heard that the top of the card completely gets blown up. And we have a new title fight for the 155 title. Islam Makachev, Alexander Volkanovsky will rematch after they fought in Perth earlier this year in a very competitive fight. And the co-main event, Hamza Chimaev, Kamaru Usman at middleweight. Kamaru Usman's first middleweight fight in the UFC. And Dana White saying that the winner of that fight will get a shot at the title being Sean Strickland. And uh, for those of you calling me a company shill and just kind of echoing the statements blindly of uh, the UFC this week because of the USADA situation, um, maybe I'll surprise you with what I think of the middleweight fight between Kamaru Usman and Hamza Chimaev producing the next title contender. TJ DeSantis is running the board. TJ, will you pop up for me? I can't actually see you, TJ. Are you on with me right now? I am. Let me uh, press a button. Oh, thanks for pressing that button for me so so I can see program. There you go. So many buttons to press. All right. I feel so much better now. I was flying blind a little bit there, TJ. I was like, maybe I'll just have to hear you and not see you today. But uh, but we're on the money. Okay. So, TJ, um, I'm going to get into the – to the UFC and USADA thing. I want to get your quick thoughts on when the news broke this week and you started seeing like the USADA statement and whatever. What what did you think as a longtime member of the MMA hardcore militia? What did you think? Man, I'm in a militia? I mean, that makes me I sound just, I just mean when it comes to hardcore MMA fans that have been following the sport for decades, you are among them. Not everybody can boast that. I appreciate that. Um yeah, I, I don't know if I'm in the minority, if I'm in the majority, uh, but honestly, like I, I leave those things up to you know the powers that be, Dana White and company. Um, for me, I, I think every promoter needs to follow the rules uh, that they're beholden to by uh, the athletic commission uh, in the uh, jurisdiction in which they promote. And beyond that, I don't really care too much. I think it was 
admirable for the UFC to bring in USADA back in uh, 2015. But the bottom line is this. USADA is never going to give you something that you didn't have. It's only going to take away. So from a fight fan's perspective, you know, USADA can sometimes be a problem. It takes away a, a potential main event. It sidelines an athlete that you otherwise would maybe want to see if something goes uh, amiss. But, I mean, you know, people want a, a player, uh, a fair, uh, you know, playing field. I I guess I, I want that as well. But at the end of the day, is, as long as you're doing what the Athletic Commission uh, wants you to do, I, I don't much care. So here's the thing, TJ, that a lot of people got wrong. Just because we're not going with USADA doesn't mean we're not going to do drug testing. Oh, yeah, you have to. The Athletic right. Commission ensures that. Yes. And now more and more athletic commissions are saying you now not only need in-competition drug testing, you need out-of-competition drug testing. That's when they can kind of show up and drug test you at any point right. to kind of bring it to, to a more level ground. See, That's the, certainly the case in Nevada. The issue with the out-of-competition drug testing is it gets a little bit murky if you're not uh, subject to someone like USADA because – Say I fight for the UFC and, uh, you know, I've got a fight coming up in you know, Tennessee or something like that. Yes. Does Tennessee have the right to come to my house in, uh, you know, Sacramento? In, well, in that's Cassidy? the thing. So they don't run the tests. Right. They just say you have to have out of competition testing. That's up to you how you administer it. And USADA is one of those that could. All right. I want to get into what happened with USADA, TJ. And, uh, you know, like I said, follow the money. And as I said at the top. I have some pretty inside access to people, to major decision makers in the UFC world. Okay. This morning, Jeff Nowitzki's in the apex. I knew he was going to be there because he's got to talk to the fighters now because what USADA did by their fly by the seat of their pants statement that came across as like an angry email TJ, you ever write an angry email and then like, you're like, I shouldn't send this. I'll delete it. Oh yeah. And I'm very happy that the iPhone now comes with a unsend feature, at least when it comes to certain text messages and things right. like that. All right. So Tiger and the crew over at USADA wrote an angry email and they hit send. Right. And they should have hit unsend, but they didn't because now they're going to get MF'd by Dana Right. For like the next 10 years. Um, uh, only they, 10 years? I mean, it's, it's you know, and, and it's like they, they hijacked the announcement so that they could come across looking good and looking holier than thou. And we're up on the high uh, mountaintop looking down. The UFC is a money-making business and they just want what's best for Conor McGregor. That's what they did. Right. And it lasted like, 18 hours until the powers that be for the UFC, Jeff Nowitzki, Hunter Campbell come out and tell the actual story of what happened. And so Jeff Nowitzki tells me today, and I was saying this because I kind of saw it unfolding in real time. And I have access to people who kind of knew what was going on after USADA releases that statement. Um, I was saying, if you go on USADA's website and you go under their FAQs, one of the frequently asked questions of USADA is, do you um, control the drug testing situation for major American sports leagues, NCAA college athletes, the NFL, the NHL, MLB, uh, the NBA, organizations like that? And USADA says generally not, but we do handle the program for the UFC. So it's like in their first sentence, they were very proud. It was very beneficial 
uh, for USADA to be the drug testing program of the UFC. Because despite the fact that their logo is red, white, and blue, and it has a star and it has some stripes and there's U.S. in it, they do not have any affiliation with the U.S. government. It seems like it's um, this big official government program, and it is not. Just like other companies that use U.S. in their title, just like the Federal Reserve is not federal, doesn't have reserves, there's companies that will kind of – they come off as more official than they are. Right. Okay. Um, USADA is not that. USADA gets revenue from the different things that they do drug testing for. The UFC was their biggest client and will continue to be their biggest client until the end of 2023. I found out today that USADA, by losing the UFC deal, is losing 25% of their revenue. 25% of their company revenue is out the window because on Monday when Hunter Campbell told Travis Tigert that we are no longer going to be using USADA at the end of our contract, 25% of their revenue out the window. USADA was not happy. They expected to sign another deal, which was like a four or five year deal is how they operate. And that would have been a whole bunch of cash and it would have been a whole bunch of good press and spots on a billboard, and every time we, ironically enough, give out a 50 times USADA-tested jacket like we did today with Darren Elkins um, in that case of timing. So that leaves. So now you got to wonder how USADA is going to make up that business or run their business differently because a quarter of their revenue is just gone out the window. They also very proudly in their headquarters have a big UFC mural on their wall, like right in their main office area headquarters in Colorado Springs is a big UFC mural on the wall. Okay. So they, all this to say, USADA had way more to lose by the UFC ending their relationship with USADA than the UFC has to lose based on USADA. Not, uh, as they say, the situation is untenable because of the handling of Conor McGregor. That is like, false not true they're breaking up with us publicly before the news came out that we actually decided to not renew the contract and then the information comes out that we are going a different path and oh by the way drug-free sport handles the drug testing for the nfl for uh, i believe major league baseball other major organizations so we are still going to have a policy in place of drug testing and it's Probably it's it's going to be more tailored to athletes because they know how it operates. And also it's going to be more tailored to UFC athletes and how they like to do it. Stories of USADA uh, randomly drug testing Paulo Costa uh, like in Salt Lake City. Like I forget, did they wake him up early or it was like late? It was while he was cutting weight. They yep. drug tested him while he was cutting weight. And then also there are stories of guy fighting in a main event which happens at around midnight, depending on the TV market. And they would drug test him the week before at six in the morning, wake him up. And this guy's trying to get his body clock right so he can fire physically at the right time at midnight in 10 days after cutting weight and all that other stuff. Right. And you have to ask why. Like, what does it matter that he drug tests clean at six in the morning? Get him at noon. 
What are yeah. you doing? Right. And so that is going to be some of the major differences that make it still a level playing field, still a drug testing program that's comprehensive, that is transparent, that is above board, but not by these kind of rules and uh, just like uh, the ignorance of USADA drug testers as far as who they are testing for. Yeah. I mean, again, Brendan, that's my uh, sort of uh, ideology on this is is people that are sort of saying, oh, the UFC is is trying to end this relationship on behalf of Conor McGregor, you know, yada, yada, yada. But the bottom line is the UFC never had to implement USADA testing to begin with. Like it was a decision that they made. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, th- it's a decision that, again, is only going to cause more problems than it's going to necessarily help the bottom line. I mean, we've seen athletes fall out a couple of days before, you know, a main event and, and card shuffle. And the last thing Sean Shelby or Mick Maynard ever want to do is try to, you know, find a replacement. And they've been having to find a lot of replacements lately, uh, not related to yeah. uh, USADA yeah. tests. But, uh, you know, the bottom line is uh, I, I personally don't think that th- there is any sort of, uh, you know, shame on the UFC for deciding to go a different direction because, again, they never needed to go this direction to begin with. Look at right. all the other MMA promotions out there. They're not yeah. doing it. They're not going out there and sort of, you know, leading the way there. And uh, it's unfortunate that it's uh, played out this way. Uh, but, I mean, the way that you describe that office in, in Colorado and, and the money that uh, USADA has, you know, sort of been relying on with yes. the UFC, uh, it's, it seems like for USADA, you know, governing the UFC athletes and testing them, is a big part of their identity. So it's a huge part of their identity. They're very proud of it, as I said. Um, they they trot it out on their website. They have the mural on the wall. And uh, I don't know what that mural looks like today. Maybe there's some red marker on it or something like that. Or somebody took a paint roller to it. <laughs> but um, yeah, like, so, and, and then, listen, Conor McGregor makes the UFC money. Right. Plain and simple. Let's acknowledge that. And then people would say the other day, um, on X, they'd say, you got to admit it looks bad because of the McGregor situation and the timing of all this. And if you just go one level further, you go, yeah, that's why they did it. Then they yeah. found out on Monday and they said, well, and that's why Hunter saying he's ashamed at how they use Conor McGregor as a media vehicle, as he termed it, because yes, the timing of it is not good. If Connor had already fought after being in the program six months, then this just all looks bad on USADA. Right. They're trying to salvage whatever they can by sending out that uh, press release and kind of like, uh, like you know, sandbagging the UFC by instead of letting the UFC announce our new drug program, which we were going to do, I believe, in December. I think they had to hyperspeed and they obviously had to address what happened this week. But – so, so acknowledging, acknowledging that Conor McGregor makes the UFC money. Yes, right. indeed. John yeah. Jones makes us more money than fighters on the prelims. Conor McGregor, McGregor makes us more money than any other athlete has in UFC history. That is true. What we have proven, though, is that we can thrive without Conor McGregor. He hasn't exactly been a regular competitor in the octagon, certainly since the ESPN deal started. Right. Uh, what did he fought? Cowboy Cerrone in 2020, early 2020. Mm-hmm. And then he fought Poirier twice. Yeah. 
Yep. So since the ESPN deal started at the beginning of 2019, so at 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, we're like five years in, he's fought three times. We can survive and thrive and grow without Conor McGregor. Can USADA thrive and grow without a quarter of their revenue from the UFC? That's the question they have to ask themselves. And that's why they tried to get out in front of it. And that's why it's very dangerous that they did this to somebody like Dana White in the UFC who like will Dana will make no mistake. Like Dana will let the world know what he thinks of your organization if you do something behind the scenes and kind of snaky like this. And that's what it is. And I'm not this type of guy, TJ. You know me. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that is also concerning for me for USADA to sort of, you know, make this proclamation and go out, you know, kind of go into business for themselves is if they want to secure a, a relationship like this with either the UFC down the road or, or someone else in the future, like, is this what happens when things go south and maybe you don't necessarily get along or you're not going to re-sign a deal? Because the last thing you ever want to do, even if you don't get along with a, a former, you know, business uh, partner is go out there in the public spotlight and rip them apart. Because to me, if I'm going to potentially do business with you, I'm just going, all right. So if, if I give you an answer you don't necessarily like, you're going to start ripping me in the public spotlight? Like, I, yeah. I don't know if I want to be associated with that. So you know who just started a deal with USADA recently? Who's that? The PFL. Okay. So they got to be looking at this like, oh, wish we could maybe rethink that because they, I, Jeff Nowitzki told me PFL just started a deal with USADA and I was like, well, how long is it? And he's just like, oh, they usually operate on four or five year contracts. And he's just like, they're looking at us now and how you, uh, USADA, uh, released that, you know, press release. It's false. They, like they, they just utterly came out and told a lie. Like I heard one of, I heard Donna, uh, who's side by side with Jeff Nowitzki in terms of our drug testing program. And she just goes, Travis Tiger lied. He just lied. He sent out that press release and it lied and they just sent it out. And that's why the UFC said they want a retraction and they might have some legal issue to deal with. And the other thing that complicates, and I feel bad about this is Jeff, I asked Jeff, uh, Nowitzki and Tiger have, they've worked together for 22 years, right? Yeah. That he, they go back till, when Jeff was with the Treasury Department yep. and Travis was with USADA and they were taking down Victor Conti, which was Barry Bonds and hit the drug scandal with that. Obviously, Lance Armstrong was a high profile case. So he said he, he's known Travis Tiger for 22 years. And I was like, so was it like a professional thing or like, were you like friends? And he's just like, yeah, it's like we we're friends for a long time. And then like this happens this week. And so I feel bad about that. But, um, you know, it's, it's certainly a complicated uh, process. When something ends, it's it, it doesn't. It's not like it has to be easy. But Usada did yeah. not help themselves. Uh, I got a text, our first text of the day. This is from the two oh nine. Maybe it's someone from Stockton. Oh, here know. we go. Here um, we go. What about Jeff Nowitzki? I thought he worked for Usada. Is he no longer with Usada and now working with the UFC? I think that's the biggest misconception, right, Brendan? Yeah, he's the intermediary between Usada in the UFC. He doesn't, he's not an employee of USADA. Jeff Nowitzki is a staff employee of the UFC, right? Staff employee of the UFC. And like, yeah. So if you have any questions that you want to clear up, I'm pretty well versed in how it works. Text in nine one seven UFC talk or call us. 
So uh, Jeff Davitsky was hired by the UFC to put in place a drug testing program that will be comprehensive, transparent, above board, high integrity, all of that stuff. And Jeff was the perfect guy because of his background in the U.S. government, um, taking down Victor Conti, uh, Lance Armstrong, working on the highest of high-profile cases and working side-by-side with USADA. He had all the connections there. And I think in terms of the UFC's drug testing policy, USADA probably in the big picture, we can look back and say this was a good thing because um, we knew what USADA, everybody knows what USADA is most strict testing procedures, Olympic level stuff. So if we're going to start from zero and want to put something in place, let's establish it at a very, very high level for a while and then clean up the sport and clean up our organization in terms of our athletes. And then now that the contract is up, that's why the UFC was exploring different options because number one, it can be cheaper uh, will save money by not going with USADA. They're very expensive. There's limitations to USADA because of their strict policies that they won't bend. And I don't mean for the Conor McGregor situation. I just mean for sensitivity of some of the tests where it doesn't make sense. You had like, you just had, I can't think of a, a, a situation off the top of my head, but like there were situations where USADA would come back. Like, so Jeff Nowitzki came up with the example of, um, there's cases of Olympic athletes, women that, that like have had like unprotected sex and then like fails the test because their partner had this in their system. She's, right. And so he's just like, this is the level of like sensitivity that some of these tests go right. with. Um, and also the lack of understanding of MMA athletes. Like, right. You don't drug test them on Thursday night. You don't drug mm-hmm. test Paulo Costa on Thursday night. Yeah. Don't do it. It's not the time. So, um, so, so that's the case with USADA. But Jeff Nowitzki was hired, and he's an executive with the UFC, and he's in charge of the drug testing program for all the UFC. So he still works for the UFC, and he works side-by-side side with Hunter Campbell and other executives on what we're going to do for the next phase of our drug testing program, what has worked, what hasn't worked, how much is this going to cost, who's going to do it, and so that's that. So USADA was given all jurisdiction. That's the reason why... Sometimes we lost fights where it was like, this doesn't make sense that we're losing this fight, but USADA says we have to lose this fight and we're not going to start making exceptions. We can't do that. We have too much to lose. It'd be the wild west. So now that's where George Pirro comes in and they hire George Pirro and he, George Pirro is not a UFC employee, but he has been given full charge of the UFC's drug testing program. Nowitzki is on the UFC side saying, this is what we want. He's going to work with George side by side. George Pirro is an, a contracted person, and they have given him the reins. And I don't know what they put in writing, but certainly it will be in writing. It's his final say. He has jurisdiction over UFC drug tests and w- what will happen. And, I, and I'll also say this. I was surprised at some of the fighters, number one, and uh, fans, number two, and the media surprised me the most where they heard that they saw this statement by USADA and said, I guess we're back to pre-USADA days. And it's just like, you think that we're just going to like gas all drug testing and we're just going to bring the roids back. Bring the steroids back. That's what a lot of people were out there saying. And I'm shocked that 
they believed that, like they thought that that is where this was heading because right. USADA fired off an angry email. That is not the case. And uh, the, the drug testing will make more sense, still be as strict. And I would say chances that it gets even more strict because everyone's going to try to, you know, not everyone, people are always going to try to beat the system. There will be some bad seeds that are going to try to beat the system. And I would hear from fighters and they just go, oh, isn't that interesting that he went to Brazil to do this camp? Oh, he lost a couple in a row. Now he did his camp in Brazil. He lives somewhere else. He doesn't live in Brazil. Why did he do his camp in Brazil? And so I think that the network of sample collectors and drug testers is, uh, more global, I think it might be wider uh, using drug-free sport because of how their business works instead of USADA. Yeah, um, you know the 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 big thing again the the misnomer I think that people have is like you said, oh, we're just bringing steroids back. Like it's never been a thing. You've never been able to just take steroids in the UFC in 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 the modern era. There's always been testing to some level. You may get away with doing something and not having to test because a lot of athletic commissions are different. Uh, you know, pretty much every athletic commission I believe uh tests every uh participant in a title fight and then generally it's a few random athletes uh, on a card and again mm-hmm. that's that's always happening you know midweek uh, uh you know the week of the event uh or or maybe you have to submit a test to get your license but uh yeah the the idea that uh you can just show up uh, a shredded 285 pounds and you know you're uh yeah. an action figure it's never been a thing okay and then i'll say uh, i'll say another thing and then if we have texts, I'll address them in terms of the USADA situation. And then we can move on to UFC 294. We can talk this weekend if we want. We'll keep the show going. Um, so USADA lost a quarter of their revenue. They have a huge UFC mural, mural on their uh, wall in their headquarters. So we brought them a lot of money. So when you say follow the money, it's not about the Conor McGregor money. It's about the USADA money that they just lost. Okay. And then here's the other thing in regards to Conor McGregor. The timing was not good. We'll see if Conor McGregor files a lawsuit or whatever he does about that. But in terms of the Conor McGregor situation, they confirmed that he re-entered the testing pool, and he did. And so that gives him – I don't know the exact date off the top of my head, but if you just do the math on we're coming up on 294, UFC 295 will be in November. You go forward on it, UFC 300 is going to be in April. Okay, That's when they're obviously targeting Conor McGregor's return, UFC 300 in April. The reason why he just re-entered the pool is because he needed to be back in the pool for six months. That's the USADA rules. That's the rules that we've been going by. So USADA confirmed that Conor McGregor is back in the USADA drug testing pool to be uh, eligible to return to the UFC after six months. Okay, Hunter Campbell and Jeff Nowitzki came out and they said it doesn't matter how many clean tests he has. If it hasn't been six months, we're not going to bend the rules even for Conor because you can't do that. You can't do that. Connor's only going to fight another handful of times in his career. Can't just completely throw the rule book out the window to get him back for one fight. It's not how it works. And there's a lot for the UFC to lose in terms of running a professional organization. So here's the biggest thing. If something were to be amiss, the biggest thing would be Jeff Nowitzki resigning. I told them that today because I was talking to a friend and they said, well, I guess the first clue is if they actually uphold the six months for Conor McGregor. They're going to uphold the six months. He entered the test. Uh, he re-entered the pool with six months and a, and a little extra, like a week or something like that. 
in anticipation of trying to return at UFC 300. So if Conor fights at UFC 300, that's six months. He'll be tested by USADA for almost three months, right? Because he ran through the pool early October through the end of the year. That's almost three months. And then he'll be tested under the new drug program just as anybody else. And it'll be six months until he's cleared and can actually fight. If we were to bend the rules and he didn't have to wait six months, Jeff Nowitzki would resi- resign. He's principled enough. I, I, I had that conversation with him today. I was just like, that would be the biggest clue because I know you, Jeff, and you wouldn't work here because what's the point in running a drug program if we're not going to abide by it? So uh, that's the last thing I'll say on that. It was bad timing from an optics perspective on the Conor McGregor situation reentering the pool. That's why USADA did it. And uh, now I think they are going to have some damage control and some spin zone to do uh, when stuff like this is brought up in the future. And we'll see what kind of clients want to go their way after they did what they did this week. I got one text uh, pertaining to uh, USADA, and it's, it's just a question I think uh, more for you than than me. I've already sort of uh, established my thoughts on this, but uh, what are your thoughts, uh, is from the, the 407, wherever that is, what are your thoughts on USADA? Do you feel like there needs to be out-of-competition uh, drug testing, and does it really make a big difference if an athletic commission is testing them the week of anyway? So, yes, obviously, um, no question about it. There needs to be out of competition. That's why more and more athletic commissions are making that a rule, too. Obviously, for a long time, it's been in competition tests because that's where the fighters are. It's the cheapest way to do it. Um, I'm glad I don't have to run a drug testing program. I imagine it's very expensive. There's a lot of administrative. Like, think of the fires that they have to constantly put out. And that's when everybody passes their tests. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff going on, and um, but it's a part of sports where we can't just go on the honor system. And when you're out of competition, think about this: like, and it's even competition testing that's very strict. Like there has been, there's still like ways to get around it, um, or or ways that uh, athletes think they can get around it. And so out of competition, let's say you're, I don't even want to name any names. Let's just say you win a big fight and then you're like, cool. Uh, in my big fight, I injured my foot, my injured my knee. So I know I'm going to be out for a while. So I'm just going to wait. And I know I'm at least not fighting for four months, five months. And it's, it's my left hand, but I can still run and I can still punch with my right hand and I can still do a lot of lifting and all that other sort of stuff. So you could out of competition yourself with a bunch of stuff that would make you much, much better in the cardio department, never mind anything else. Right. And then, uh, you know, so obviously, yes, you do need out of competition. It needs to be pretty strict. The whole policy needs to be transparent. And, uh, you know, obviously it needs to follow all the same rules. The, the one thing too, Orlando, think, 407 Orlando. Thanks Orlando. for the text. Awesome. Uh, the, the other thing too, I think uh, is important for people to realize in the difference between just only going with the athletic commission compared to uh, a third party, um, you know, drug testing agency is uh, what is on the USADA, you know, band list is not necessarily on the band list for uh, an athletic commission or they don't test for certain right. things. I mean, uh, you, you mentioned, you know, the the analogy of, uh, you know, an athlete having unprotected sex with a partner and then testing positive for something like 
I never heard the word picogram in my life until USADA mm-hmm. was around. But that's, you know, the the level of testing that they've done. And, uh, you know, once you set that that bar and uh, standard, uh, you're going to have to keep it up. And I think that the UFC is going to definitely do that because, again, the idea that you would be this stringent on out-of-competition testing and then have your agreement lapse and then just go, whatever. That just doesn't make sense. Why why even go yeah. down the road to begin with? All right. So, but man, were there a lot of UFC haters standing by licking their chops earlier this week when uh, you know, they thought they had a whole a whole raw piece of meat to jump on. And so, okay, let's get to UFC two ninety four, shall we, TJ? Because you know, really the reason why we love this sport is great fights. Yes. Great fights. And the UFC is awesome because we can take a uh, barrel of monkeys in terms of like, uh, you know, just a crap situation, right? Charles Oliveira is out 10 days before and it's just like, what is going on? This really stinks. So one phone call, Alexander Volkanovsky steps up and he'll get his rematch sooner than we think. Now, some have said this fight's even bigger than the one, the rematch with Charles Oliveira. Now, what you can argue pretty easily is that Volkanovsky gave Islam a way better fight than Oliveira did in uh, each of their respective first meetings. Went all five rounds, went 25 minutes. And here's the narrative for Volkanovsky going into that fight. He was a huge underdog. He's great, but he's a featherweight and Islam is too much to handle. And I think there was uh, the controversy uh, in quotes surrounding this result directly has to do with the fact that going into the fight, a lot of people thought he wouldn't last two rounds. And he not only lasted five rounds, but he was competitive and got better as the fight went on, right? He won at least a round, definitely, maybe two, depending on on your scorecards. Um, For me, TJ, there was no controversy in the result. uh, Watching it live, I said it's either 4-1 Islam or 3-2 Islam, right? right? There's no, no, now, bolstered by the crowd support, in Perth, Western Australia, and the UFC hadn't been back to Australia in years because mm-hmm. of the pandemic, and and it was so good in terms of a fan standpoint that decision makers at the UFC immediately got on a plane, flew to Sydney, and they're like, "When are we coming back to Australia? We got to get another pay per view back here this year. We got to make this happen." And what do you know? We go back to Sydney later in the year, and we signed a new deal with the government of Australia that we're going to be in Sydney regularly in the coming years. And uh, down in Australia, like a couple times a year, I think we're going to do a fight night and a pay-per-view there next year. So uh, major, major crowd support in a MMA-crazed country, lots of huge UFC fans, and one of their own, Volk, goes to the limit with a guy who was a huge favorite and made it a competitive fight. Having said that, it wasn't controversial in terms of the result. Islam, clear winner. And now... Islam's a smaller favorite this time around than he was back in February. And I know betters that are licking their chops on Islam Akachev. You're like, dude, now he's getting a home game and he's not going to look past Volk and Volk's on 10 days. Right. Yeah. That that's what I wanted to ask you, Brendan. You know, looking at this fight, we we saw. I mean, we get rematches, but we very rarely get rematches like this this quickly, right? You know, champ versus champ. Uh, it's already happened inside this calendar year, and, and I'm curious: does this short notice opportunity help or hurt Volkanovski? Because I mean, I, I feel like you have Makashev, who was obviously 
preparing for Oliveira, um, not really, you know, training with the mindset to take on Volkanovsky. Volkanovsky, does he have, I mean, sometimes in these short notice situations, you can say that the guy who steps up on short notice has nothing to lose. I, I feel that Volk was going to get a, a rematch eventually as long as he kept winning. If he loses right. this time, a third fight with Mikashev, incredibly unlikely, at least anytime soon. Uh, your thoughts on, on the call and, and sort of the gamble uh, of taking it, does, does it help or, or, or hurt Alexander? I love the yes from Volk. So I don't want this to sound misconstrued towards Volk. And uh, I'm a huge fan of Volkanovsky. I, I, I love that dude. Love everything he stands for. He has worked his way up the chain from a fighter of note, the hard way, the long way, but the genuine way. Like he's come up the ranks to be a fan favorite, but he has not done it by sound bites, press conferences, antics, being a character. He's done it by hard work, by winning, by dominating. And through that comes the message from like, you know, something that like The Rock would be proud of, right? Hardest working guy in the room, work when the lights are off, work when the cameras are off. It's not about what you do on social media. It's about what you do in the octagon. I love every single aspect about that from Volkanovsky. And now he's worked his way all the way up to be arguably the top pound for pound fighter on the planet, still a dominant featherweight champion. Having said all that, I think taking the fight in this circumstance for him hurts him. I think that Volk would have a much better chance at beating Islam if he had laser focus a full eight weeks, 10 weeks, whatever it happened to be, at least even six weeks, right? Depending on the circumstances to get, uh, get, get his mind right for the challenge. He's got maybe the best fight IQ in the entire world. Um, Islam's right up there too. Don't be, don't be fooled by that. But Volk has as good a fight IQ and in terms of how he chooses to game plan, what's going to work, what he wants to avoid. And so I think having a full camp with his coaching staff on saying, this is what happened. Let's watch the fight in detail like 12 times and then let's work on one thing. And then we'll go watch the fight again in detail and then we'll go to work on one thing. And to ingrain maybe some new habits or new uh, reflexes because that's what you got to rely on when you're in there. And uh, I think that this situation, albeit it gets the biggest hat tip from me, and, um, you know, it certainly will pave the way for him, you know, on his way to immortality as a fighter if he could become a double champ this way. But I do think it hurts his chances of winning taking the fight under these circumstances. Yeah, I, I agree with you. But when the UFC calls and it's for a title fight, I mean, you have to say yes, yeah. right? Like, and, and you could say he has nothing to lose. Obviously, what he does have to lose is if he doesn't win, then he's probably not getting an Islam, Islam double champ fight opportunity anytime soon. Right. But you got to ask yourself, was he getting that anyways uh, anytime soon? Because he was scheduled for Topuria coming mm -hmm. up. And that fight's not completely off the table, but maybe it is, maybe it's not. But the point being is that Islam was going to fight Charles Oliveira. Justin Gaethje is the, the BMF title winner and waiting for a title shot. And he's got Ali as a manager who gets his guy's title fights. So you got to think it was going to be Oliveira. And then depending on win or lose, maybe it's a trilogy with Islam if Oliveira pulled that off. 
Or if Islam wins, Justin Gaethje's just sitting there waiting, and we have some big events, and we'd have some championship opportunities um, for fights coming up in early 2024. Like, uh, as mentioned, UFC 300 right. has a couple of big lightweights scheduled to maybe tangle in that main event, maybe also put another lightweight title fight on there so that nothing can go wrong. And if th- things did go wrong, then you have matchups involving a Michael Chandler, a Conor McGregor, a UFC lightweight title. The belt just happens to be in the building. I don't know. So there was those possibilities. But so all that to say that Volk would have had to wait probably anyways and defend his featherweight title at least once, maybe twice to get another double champ shot. Yeah. Um, what do you think about Makashev? In the evolution that that we'll see, you know, from fight one to fight two with Volkanovski, do you think we'll see a much different approach from Islam? I mean, I, I don't know. I I don't think so. I don't think he's going to chase the finish. Um, I think maybe he tries to keep it on the feet a little bit more this time around. Although in the grappling exchanges, he looked pretty good. I think he'll. Um, yeah, it's really tough to say. Because on one hand, I think that he would be more urgent towards a finish if it was a matchup that was ready. But remember when Kamaru Usman fought Jorge Masvidal? And it was supposed to be Usman versus Gilbert Burns in the first fight island back in July of 2020. And the reason why that fight ended up being boring is because Usman wanted to take less chances. And so um, he wanted to secure the W because... When you're in that position, there is a whole lot at stake. Pay-per-view points coming in as the champion. He's in Abu Dhabi, for Christ's sakes, in terms of UFC 294 and the location. So I'll be curious to see Islam because I know on one hand he wants to send the message. Like He's probably like, I can't believe people are saying I didn't win that last fight. Like I, be, I beat right. him. Um, and so obviously what's the way to remedy that is to very clearly beat him by making him tap out or knocking him out. Right. But – on a 10 day situation when you're preparing for a very unique and crazy challenge of Charles Oliveira, then, uh, then I don't know what the game plan, like I don't really have in my head exactly what he should do. Maybe actually he'll take him down more because he was able to take down Volk. Like, um, we looked in detail at that fight on UFC breakdown, which sadly it was about the Islam and, and Charles fight. So it won't even hit the airwaves, but I just recorded it on Monday with safe and he was going, we basically dove deep into Oliveira's last fight against Benil and Islam's last fight against Volk because they had each fought one time since they fought each other. And, you know, like I said, how Volkanovsky has great fight IQ among the best in the whole, in the world. But like Islam was right there. Like Islam clearly had timing, uh, like Volkanovski, not an easy guy to take down, maybe even tougher to hold down. And he was able to do that. And so when you like watch it in slow motion with an educated coach kind of being like, look at this, like head off to the side when Volk came in and he didn't just like try to get him with a hook or get him with a jab to keep his distance. Like he would step in and he elbowed Volk. He's just like, you got to be confident when you're going in with the timing for an elbow and Islam landed those. He dropped them. Like Volk's not a tough guy to, they're not an easy guy to drop in the in the punching in the, in the in the striking, and he's certainly not an easy guy to take down and hold down. Islam did all three of those things. Yeah, you know, uh, it's still early in Mikashev's run, but uh, I, I mean, I firmly believe that if all goes well and and he's able to continue his progression, I mean, I know recency bias might be something here, but 
I feel, Brennan, like he really has all the capabilities to get to where Khabib was. I think that he's from that same cookie cutter. I think that he has the skills. I think he is better stand-up, in my opinion, than Khabib. I think he could be better than Khabib Nurmagomedov was. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, you slip up, you get caught one time, and you have that one in the loss column. The whole conversation changes about your entire career, and it'll oh, never, it'll never be any different. I had a chance to interview uh, Evan Turner, the former NBA player, yesterday, and we were talking mm-hmm. about uh, that the idea it pertains to Usman. You know, 25 seconds uh, in that uh, Leon Edwards fight left, and we're talking about— well, it, was, it was like uh, 50 seconds, right? Okay, maybe, yeah. Maybe. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, but bottom line is less than a minute. Not trying to be an asshole, uh, but it was no, like 50 seconds. It's all right. I, I, I always <laughs> thought you were an asshole. It's okay. Um, but uh, l- looking at it, like think of another sport where— y- in basketball, you can't just make one basket and you win the game. Two minutes into the first quarter, you win the game. It's yep. the same thing. You can't just miss one shot or lose one shot and your your entire legacy hinges upon that. Maybe in a big moment, yeah, maybe you throw up a brick Game 7 NBA Finals. People are going to remember it forever. Mm-hmm. But the idea that you are this long-standing champion, statistically speaking, one of the best, if not the best to do it numbers-wise, and you, you just slip for a minute, get kicked upside the head, and then all of a sudden people are saying you were never really good to begin with. That's yeah. a crazy thing. And, and that's a pressure that I think most athletes will never understand outside of fighters because, you know, th- there are seasons. You know, the, no one's going to remember that uh, strikeout you had in, in June necessarily. They might nope. remember that strikeout in October, uh-huh. but not in June. And the idea that it can all go awry on, you know, just the, the turn of a dime, pretty crazy. I use a basketball analogy, oddly enough. You're telling that to a basketball player. I use a basketball analogy when I describe what happened to the non-UFC fan or the non-MMA fan about the Leon head kick. I said, imagine a team's down 30 points. There's 30 seconds left. Yeah. This team hit a 31-pointer. And then everyone's just like, oh, that team stinks. Like this championship team that had won titles upon right. titles and they're up 30 points in the championship and then all of a sudden it's just like oh they hit that 31 pointer ah, they weren't even that good anyways that's that's the that is the that's one of the reasons why we love mma why it's like a drug that you can't quit it's like a slot machine it's variable rewards you might show up you might have a fight that stinks you might have a great fight you might have a fight that's dominated by one guy and then he gets kicked in the head and the whole world of the sport shifts especially in that division right and it'll never be the same yeah because then usman couldn't beat him the second time now usman's gonna fight hamzat chimaev what if he loses now? That's three losses in a row for people, the guy that was knocking on the door, being the welterweight greatest of all time. His name was right there with George St. Pierre. Yeah. And now he might lose three in a row. And it might be like, oh, now he looks old. <laughs> and then it's like, see you later. I mean, we were talking about you know the idea of whether or not this is a, a good move for Volkanovsky uh, and what there is to lose and, and gain for, for Usman. I mean, man, the, the stakes could not be higher. Uh, in a, a fight that stylistically, I, I honestly don't know what this fight is going to look like. I, I, I don't know where Hamzat's head is necessarily. I know that Usman is a guy that even when he was dominating, you remember he would get on the microphone in his post-fight interviews and he would start screaming, you know, put respect on my name. He needs to be a guy, I think, that feels like the world is against him. I don't know if necessarily the world is against him. Who, Usman? Yeah, yeah. He's a guy that, that wants to think that the, there's haters. 
You know, there's a guy. He's a guy that, that I don't know. I think he tries to. I think he tries to get people to like him, and he's. I don't know. Like I don't know Kamaru that well. I just get the sense that he doesn't thrive on the hate. I thought Tyron Woodley thrived on the hate. I, I agree with Woodley, but I feel like the last few uh, post-fight uh, interviews, Usman, the first thing he would say when he would get on the mic was, "Everyone doubted me." It's like, dude, you're the greatest welterweight. Uh, yeah, I know. I like when they pull that. Years. Like I don't know what yeah. you're talking about. But uh, football, football coach talk. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's Dabo Sweeney with the number one team a few years, and he's just like, outside this locker room, not many people believed in us. It's like, what do you mean? You were a three touchdown favorite, and right. uh, everybody picked you to win the championship before the season started. Right. So, and, like, I, I, you know, he has that a bit of language. Yeah. Sure. I mean, the Diaz yeah. brothers need to hate whoever they're fighting, even if they don't. You know what I yeah. mean? It's just yeah. who they are. But let's uh, let's talk a little bit about Usman because I mean, not only is he taking this fight on on shorter notice, but at 185 pounds against Hamza. I know. Uh, I know. What do we expect? Because there's question marks about Kamaru coming into a fight fully trained at welterweight, uh, and there's even more so uh, short notice at middleweight. So I think uh, people are excited to see Hamza Chimaev back in the octagon. There's no question about it. And for Kamar Usman, what he has shown is when he can control the pace, when he can do what he wants to do, then the fight isn't very back and forth. And sometimes it's not as oh uh, as crowd-pleasing as fans would like it. But that's why he went to a new level against Colby the first time they fought back in December of 2019. We're looking at some footage of it now. Is just a great fight because it was the first, maybe not the first time, but uh, it was like a time where we saw Kamaru take some big shots, get pushed to the limit, and fire right back and not just make it about fighting the fight that he wants. He fought a fight that was very, very different than what we saw him win. And so obviously he did that against Colby the first time. He beat Colby the second time. Um, but against Leon Edwards the first time, that was more his more his brand of just you know, dominate, cage control, top control. He lost the first round. What people don't don't remember all the time is like he was dominant. He was clearly up three to one, but he also clearly lost the first round. And um, I think what people are very excited about with Usman stepping up to take this fight is Chimaev fights like no other fighter. He is a bully. He is urgent. He is all action. I mean, he's going to try to make a statement. And Chimaev largely did that against lower-tiered fighters. When you think about his debut, was it like uh, was it Jack Phillips? And then it was Reese McKee on like 10 days' notice. Like he was just whitewashing these guys. He was just like wiping them out. And now the competition's gotten better. Gerald Merchart, you know, he's a he's a UFC veteran, and he just goes one one punch and done. And uh, you know, against Gilbert Burns, though. Then the story changes a little bit. So I think a lot of people want to see. They wanted to see Hamzat move up to 185. They wanted to see uh, Hamzat fight again because it's been a long time. And now they're going to get Kamaru Usman as credentialed as he is in a new weight class. And now they're going to get him in a fight against a guy like Usman or uh, against a guy like Chimaev, who's such a bully. Yeah. Such a bully. Like even Leon Edwards, who beat Usman twice now, he's not a bully. He's a he's a. He's an assassin. He's a technical striker that can do it all. Now he's going to get a bully who's just like, who knows how how Chimaev's going to do it. But in, and here's for for all like I love the UFC. I love my job. I don't you know if it's an anti UFC stance. I I don't I don't take it right. 
I don't like that um, Dana is saying that the winner of this fight's going to get the next title shot at 185. Don't like that. Yeah, I mean, two, neither of these guys are established 85 pounders. Two welterweights. Yeah. They're fighting at 185. No one's in the top 10. Andrikas Duplessis is standing there. Right. Who just knocked out Robert Whitaker in the way that, like, very few people ever have. Adesanya's the only other one who knocked out Whitaker like that. Whitaker was very much the Max Holloway of that division, turning back Marvin Vittori, turning back Jared Cannonier, beat Gastelum. Anybody you put in front of him, as long as his name wasn't Israel Adesanya, Whitaker would win. And then Drikus goes in as a plus three, plus 400 underdog, and he knocks him out, ends right. him. And so he's the top contender. And now Izzy's saying he's going to be out for a while, and Strickland's going to look for a fight. And Strickland, as I mentioned at the top of the show, TJ, Ran into him in the locker room at the UFC PI today, and uh, Strickland will fight anybody. He's not choose. He's not a fighter that chooses stuff. No, he says I'll do it. But he told me he's just like if they put me in front of Chimaev or Usman, he's like I'm gonna I'm gonna say why do we even have rankings? I'm gonna I, I'm gonna tell that story. Get ready for it. Strickland will just. It, I, we know he's not shy. We know he's outspoken. Right. And so if two welterweights move up to 185 and the winner gets Sean Strickland for a 185 championship, uh, when neither's in the top 10, there's, there's, that's where there's some issue. Well, a lot of it, too, is how it gets done, right? Like if it's a pitter-patter, neither guy really makes a huge statement and wins on points. Yeah. No one's getting a title fight out of it. I don't. Is Chimaev repped by Ali? Um. That's a good question. Hopefully, uh, producer Frankie can look into that. I'm not so exactly Chimaev certain. might be repped by Ali. I know it, Usman was or still is. Usman is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, I, I don't know. It, it's it's crazy to me that you would manage guys that would end up fighting one another. Uh, yeah. I'm not going to say the name. He's done it. He's done oh, it. Oh, I know. I'm not going to say the name, but there was a, a guy back in the day that was uh, sort of notorious for having a lot of UFC fighters. Um, fight but uh they never really won and uh i i i used to have a, a nickname for him called show money because that's all <laughs> that's all he ever got was a percentage of their show money but yeah. uh i mean he guaranteed a win bonus uh one time when his guys fought each other but uh i got a question here uh this one from the 417 um it says hey guys what do you think about uh hamzat or uh kamaru usman stylistically and physically with their body types, who makes the better middleweight? Usman's not that big. Um, Usman is not that tall. Like Usman would, Usman will look smaller. Like he's, he is cut out of granite. Usman is very physically impressive. No question about it. But sometimes uh, you'd be surprised by the the stature of fighters when they're in person because Usman looks like Nganu, kind of, like yeah. oh, in terms yeah. of like their stature, their body type. Yeah. Like he is huge. He is yeah. like very physically impressive. Um, but then when you stand him next to a guy that's like 6'2", you're just like, oh, Usman's not that big. Yeah. Because he's like very clearly like 5'10". Right. So um, – Usman at 185, you stand him next to Marvin Vittori. I don't know. Like, I don't, you know, like I haven't, I don't really run into Usman that much. Sometimes he does some TV work and I'll see him behind the scenes. Right. But he, Usman's not one of those guys where you're like, I can't believe he makes 170. Right. He's kind of yeah. like, yeah, he makes 170. Like yeah. he's, he's chiseled, but he makes it. There's a lot of guys like that. 
Um, so at middleweight, uh, I think Stan Usman next to Drikas, he'll look he'll look quite a bit different. Drikas is like built like that, and he's all of you know six two, what two twenty probably six two two fifteen two twenty outside of camp. Yeah, I remember uh, Jacare Souza is is the guy that I stood next to. Uh, it was just absolutely blown away that he was a 185 pounder because he was so big in his shoulders. And, and mm-hmm. that's, that's what people, I, I, I don't think realize they they put a lot of stock into, you know, height and like, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong. You can be very tall and, and, you know, be comfortable at, at a higher weight class, but there are also guys that are above six feet tall that fight at Bantamweight. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, put it this way. Usman was as dominant as he was at 170. Was anybody that entire time saying, oh, look out, he's got everything to be a double champ? Nobody was saying that. No, no. Nobody was like, he's so big and good, he could go to middleweight and dominate that division too. They haven't been saying that. No. So it will be interesting to see him move up to 185. And Chimaev, you know, didn't make the weight at 170, um, but he did have some big wins. Again, Gerald Merchart, veteran middleweight, and he just won and dunned him. Right. And then obviously had trouble making the weight when he missed by a large amount and then ended up fighting. Uh, who was it? He fought Li Jing Liang or who, uh, yeah. who did he fight yeah. that night? He fought yeah. Li Jing Liang. And uh, that's right. And then Ferguson fought Diaz. And so, you know, um, that's why I'm like, no, uh, he fought Holland. Sorry, Holland. Oh, he wiped out Holland. That's yeah. right. Who's now a welterweight, too. So that's why it's just like. What are we proving at 185 here? Right. What are we proving enough to give him a title shot when the top contender was ready to say yes to a title fight in December if that's what the timing was? And now he's just going to be on the shelf. I'm talking about Drikas, uh, and ready to go. And now he's the number two contender because Israel lost. So Israel's number one. Israel's saying he's taking a lot of time off. He's going to heal himself up. Right. And Sean Strickland will fight anybody. Yeah. I think it's kind of easy. But um our, our producer Frankie came through for us. Doesn't look like Ali uh, reps Hamzat. He yeah, may I was have just at, at one that. time, but yeah, uh, no, he doesn't. Yeah. But uh, but Usman is, and Ali has the ability to get title fights. Right. If you've been following along, so I don't have any insider knowledge on that negotiation. But you always got to wonder, like just like, all right, if I say yes, do I get to fight for the title with a win? I mean, I'm, for, I'm I'm angling for it no matter what. If I'm stepping up on short notice, I'm of course to you got to get something. These yeah. guys should get something. They yeah. saved the card in a major way. Obviously, we had two fights call out, but yeah, uh, you know, it was big. Um, Is there so. a more stressful job than being a matchmaker? Like honestly, Dude, Sean Shelby just—it's so funny. Like, uh, it's just so funny to talk to him this morning. All right, I just want to answer. There's questions on the YouTube live stream that I just want to get to real quick because it actually has so. Somebody chiming in with why isn't the Lacerda fight happening tomorrow? Um, Edgar Chires and Daniel Lacerda, they fought at Noche and it was an early stoppage. So they were going to run it back this weekend and the fight was canceled. Lacerda made weight. He had a medical issue. Commit, um, after you weigh in, you got to go do medicals. And, you know, Nevada State Athletic Commission doctor has to check him out and say, good to go. There was something um, that they didn't like in terms of his medical so they canceled that fight. So that fight was off. But anyways, like I'm like I'm in touch with Shelby during those because he's kind of floating around. And if somebody misses weight, like Christian Rodriguez missed weight today, and Anthony Pettis is his manager and is there. And so then like Shelby's kind of 
going around playing damage control on a Friday at the Apex, like all the time. Like if everyone makes weight, his, his job is easy. But if it's not, he's like taking calls and he's gotten used to it. But it is just kind of like comical to see the fires that he has to constantly oh, yeah. put out, you know? I mean, I'm and I not- told him, you know, because he's second cousins with Tom Brady, by the way, too. Did you know that? I did. Like you said. And so I told him, I said, Sean Shelby, I'm pissed at you because of all the Apex shows. That I call, which is like all of them, but I didn't call last week. And Tom Brady's in the front row. Tom Brady would have been eight feet to my left, sitting next to Dana. I would have asked Dana, and like, listen, favorite athlete of all time. Can I just meet him? I don't even want a picture. Can I just say hello? Can I just say hello? Grew up a Patriots fan. You know, love that you won the Super Bowl for the Bucks, whatever. And Shelby's like, oh, man, yeah. He was in town. He was doing something for the Aces. And then... And, you know, he came over and he caught like half the main card or whatever. And then we all went to YouTube, me, Dana and Tom. It was an amazing show. And I was just like, dude, screw you. I was like, can I have your life for that night? Hang out with Tom Brady, go over to see you two at the sphere. I mean, what? why does everyone hate you, Brendan? Why aren't you <sighs> invited to social things? I don't know. I guess not. Well, I think I'll get my time with Tom Brady. I think that if I hang around long enough, I'll get to look him in the eye, give him a handshake and say I'm a big fan because... He's friends with Dana, he's cousins with Shelby, and he's a big UFC fan. So here's hoping. There you go. All right. Have yep. we wrapped it up, TJ? I don't know. Let's see, I, is, there, is there anything else we need to talk about? Is there any about? other pressing uh, questions? I mean, we kind of went over Usman and Shemaev. Ah, how about this? Buy or sell? There's value on Edson Barboza tomorrow at a plus 140 uh, underdog against Sadiq Yusuf. So I can't pick, TJ. I can, I'm calling the I'm not saying that you darn should pick. Fight. I'm not saying you should pick. I'm just saying there have been a lot of underdogs lately. Like, to me, I hate to say, I'll, I'll go into to business and say that I think there's value there. I, I don't bet fights. But when you look at the experience here uh, that Edson Barboza has, uh, I think it's it's crazy to look at uh, how long he's been uh, in the UFC, 13-year uh, uh, octagon veteran taking on Sadiq Youssef, who you know is is doing great for himself. He's definitely uh, a guy to keep uh, your eye on. But I, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Edson Barboza has the ability to change fights on a dime, uh, a, a kicking attack unlike any other. And it takes—I mean, we're talking about Leon Edwards and that one head kick. It takes a fraction of a second for Edson Barboza to uh, make everyone forget that he was an underdog. So again, I'm not saying bet. But if there's value on any underdog, there's always value on uh, thinking that Edson Barbosa can win the fight. All right. I'm um, not going to disagree, and I will use this opportunity to plug our awesome show on UFC Fight Pass called UFC On The Line, in which Yanni the Greek and Nick Kalikas chop it up. They are our resident gambling experts, and they give you their take, uh, and they give you their bets. So if you're unaware of that, that one is on UFC Fight Pass and streaming right now. And we did do an episode for this weekend. And then we'll have another episode coming out for UFC 294. And um, I'll just give the little top hint is that Yanni agrees with you, TJ, that there's plenty of value on a guy like Edson Barbosa whenever you get plus money on him still. I mean, if he's 37, he's, he's been around. Right. But... The strength of schedule on Sadiq Youssef is not the strength of schedule of Edson Barbosa. Yeah. Right? He has not fought the top-level guys, and Edson Barbosa has consistently fought 
the top level guys. So this is very much a measuring stick for Yusuf. And the question is, are you going to pay for it by laying money? Or are you going to take the underdog, get a little plus money on the guy that's been there, done that, coming off a huge knockout over Billy Q. Billy Q was a favorite in that fight too. And so, uh, yes, Yanni believes that there is uh, some value on that underdog spot. We've got, we've got one final uh, text message here from the 949. It says, uh, what are your thoughts on the year of the underdog? Uh, this year it's been a record-setting calendar year for new champions, and I tend to lean towards underdogs uh, when forced to pick. All right. I like underdogs. Yeah, from the Orange County, California, 949. Um are, are you like a rain man with area codes? Like, no, how- I got you. I got a little something called Google on my computer, TJ. And when you, you say you, you just pulled it up that quickly, though. Yeah, because, you know, it's like the magician trick. You said, all right, we got a text from the nine, four, nine. And then while you read it, wow. I can come in. You should have just trolled me forever. I would have thought I know I should have just pulled. Yeah. I shouldn't have pulled back the curtain like that. Go with it. Um, underdogs are fun. Everybody loves an underdog story. I don't think that's ever going to go out of style. New champions can be fun. And um, obviously, like, things that you don't see coming, that's why we watch sports. Right. And so if, uh, you know, if Izzy just won another 10 in a row and Usman won another 10 in a row and um, Islam just won another 10 in a row, then, like, every once in a while you want to mix. Now, dominance is fun, too. That's why the Kansas City Chiefs get good TV ratings. I thought in addition it was Taylor to, Swift. You know, well, in addition to that. Okay. Uh, but, <laughs> but like, you know, dominance will get eyeballs and every, and then that builds it up, right? Think of Valentina Shevchenko. But Valentina Shevchenko was getting a little stale. It was just like, all right, who's she just going to demolish this time? Right. And now, isn't the flyweight division a whole lot more fun? Even though Valentina should have the belt back because of the controversial judging situation. But now... Grasso opened the door. There's light in that, you know, dark maze that was dominated by Valentina. And um, and then so, so now that the big question is uh, featherweight. To me, that's the big question, right? Because every other thing is like Jones and Stipe is, is a very compelling fight. You know, 205 is a division where we just, you know, it's just been a crazy mix of of what's going on over the last couple of years 185 now has a little juice in terms of like who's gonna be next how they're gonna do um so there's a lot of divisions where there's a lot of compelling matchups and i think underdogs are fun i think championship belts changing hands are fun it's not always the case because you gotta build stars too right reason why connor got as big as he was because he was so dominant and the rise is is awesome it's yeah. good for business. It's good for being a fan. It's it's good for a lot of stuff. But the year of the underdog, the year of belts changing hands, uh, I'm here for it, man. We need we need years like this too. I agree. I wonder if uh, the, I wonder if anybody puts out prop bets on like how many title changes there will be in a calendar year. In the I'll talk to my friends at DraftKings. We'll see. That's another one. They started doing futures. Like you can bet who's going to be the middleweight champion at the end of 2024. Oh man, that's. That's fun. You can I, see, like, I like who, things like that. Yeah, like, yeah. So, like at the beginning of the year, we talk about it on on the line. Who's going to be the lightweight champion at the end of 2023? We talked about that like back in you know February, right? right? And then uh, right now, the interesting one is they brought the heavyweight odds out a month or two ago, and because of what we talked about last week of the retirement rumors, right, is the highest 
ranked the, the shortest odds for who's going to be the heavyweight champ at the end of 2024, I believe, was Pavlovich. Wow. Pavlovich. Uh, Almeida was up there. And uh, I think Tom Aspinall was like six to one. Jones was Jones and Stipe were around, but like Stipe right. was like twelve to one. Really? Yeah, for the end, he's got to hold the title at the end of twenty twenty four. Yeah. So it's like uh, there are championship futures like that, and maybe I'll talk to DraftKings and uh, see if we could say over under like belts to change hands, like yeah. champions to lose in a year. That's a good idea. I like I that. like stuff like that. Yeah. All right, Teej. I like well, doing the show with you, Brendan. This, this is, is fantastic. This is good. So two Fridays in a row. Yeah. Um, we did get one phone call, by the way, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. I screened it, and they it's were just tr- they were just trying to be an asshole. They were okay. To, good. Good. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. 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 Thanks, TJ, doing the Lord's work there. But uh, no, this was great. Two Fridays in a row. Uh, I'm on the call tomorrow for Yusuf and Barbosa at the Apex. And uh, so we'll have some fun here in Las Vegas next week. TJ, we'll talk off camera next week. I'm going to ESPN. Okay. I'm going to go do the shows, the the pre-show and the whatever, not from Abu Dhabi, but from ESPN. All right. So maybe we get back on the horn from a hotel room in Bristol, Connecticut on Friday. Maybe we'll adjust the time depending on my schedule or well, whatever, I, something like that. I, but you know. I feel offended because I'm coming to Vegas next Friday. Oh, and, well, so and you're leaving. So got out of town. Otherwise, we could do it in person. But yeah, um, right. thanks everybody for watching, listening, however you uh, consume the show. But um, yeah, Fitz Nation started out as an interview podcast. I like this live format, taking calls, texts. Uh, put myself out there a little bit. Got a little fired up at the USADA people for being snakes. And, uh, you know, telling how it really is going down and the new drug testing program that's about to be put in place. My thanks to TJ DeSantis as well for running the board. Frankie on the UFC Fight Pass side of things who's behind the scenes as well. And I do have a podcast interview coming out with Kyle Bohilio. Don't look for that next week. There's going to be plenty to keep you busy with UFC 294 next week. Look for that the following week. He fights in Sao Paulo in, uh, I believe, the co-main event. That I'll be down there. But me and Kyle met in person here in Las Vegas. We had a great chat. So that'll come out in a, in a couple weeks' time. And uh, yeah, we'll keep things going. So Fitz Nation signing off. I'll talk to you guys very soon. Thanks for watching.